Good evening, everyone. Uh, lovely to, uh, to have you all with us uh, for our evening service. But before we start, uh, let's just take a moment uh, to still our hearts, to ready ourselves for this evening uh, and offering this time up to the Lord uh, for him. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much uh, for this evening. Thank you that uh, we can uh, gather together. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would help us now by your spirit to uh, put the distractions uh, of uh, this morning and of, uh, of the week ahead uh, down. Uh, lift our eyes uh, toward you. Father, place in our hearts a longing to hear from you this evening. And we pray that uh, as we journey through the service, uh, that uh, by your spirit, through your word, as it is preached and through uh, our feasting at your table, that you would speak to us, you would encourage our hearts, and that you would place there a burning desire uh, to live for you and to glorify you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Paul writing to, uh, to Timothy, 1 Timothy, uh, verse 15, he says this. Uh, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Isn't that just the most glorious truth? Uh, that, the, that Christ Jesus came not because we were worthy, not because uh, we are the choice people, but rather because we are the chosen people. He came to save us, to live the life that we should have lived, and then to die the death that we deserve in our place, that we might become children of God. I love the way that that stanza uh, opens. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. But I guess uh, as we reflect, as we look back, uh, at the week that we've had, the day that we've had, maybe even the last hour uh, that we've had. Uh, we haven't lived in the light of that truth. We've lived as if we are the ones who sit on the throne, uh, as if we are the ones who declare what is right and what is wrong, but actually forgetting that we have a high priest. We have one who comes before the throne of God. So let's just take a moment now in the stillness of our own hearts to come before the Lord uh, and say sorry uh, for the times that we've lived uh, for ourselves uh, and not for him. Bring to mind those times where uh, perhaps we've been uh, sharp with our words, where our actions have been unkind or missing, uh, where our heart's desires have been for things of the world rather than things of God. So just in a moment of quiet in our own hearts. The sun of righteousness has dawned with healing in his wings. So let us, come to, let us come to the light of Christ, confessing our sins in penitence and faith. To God of mercy, we acknowledge that we have lived for ourselves and not for you. We turn from the wrong that we have thought and said and done. And are mindful of all that we have failed to do. For the sake of Jesus, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and help us to live each day in the light of Christ, our Lord. Amen. So some words of assurance that we might know with certainty of our forgiveness.
May God our Father forgive us our sins and bring us to the eternal joy of his kingdom, where dust and ashes have no dominion. Amen. When I saw on the order of service that we were to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, it took me back to our days in Loughton in Essex, to an elderly lady, a member of our congregation, Mrs. Durley, her name. She'd had a troubled life. She told me her husband had tried to make her go mad. It ended up with a messy divorce. But she had a sister-in-law who loved the Lord Jesus, who was a missionary, and used to talk to her and share the gospel with her. And Ivy Durley turned her eyes upon Jesus. And she bore a lovely testimony in that church until the day she died. She proved the faithfulness of God and the wonder of salvation in the Lord Jesus. I thank God for the memory of her in such troubled and difficult days. And we're here now to turn our eyes upon Jesus. What a privilege to seek the face of our God in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we turn to you in prayer. We look to you, our Heavenly Father. We call upon your name, for you are great and glorious. You are sovereign of the universe. You are almighty, all-powerful, Lord of space and time. And yet you care for us. You sent your Son our Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to save sinners like us. We thank you that the Saviour died on Calvary's cross, bearing our sin in his own body on the tree. We thank you that he rose again and saves and keeps those who put their trust in him. Dear Lord, hear our cries tonight as we come as needy people seeking your help and your blessing. We pray for this troubled world in which we live. So many places in desperate need, so much sorrow and suffering, so much want and despair. Lord, have mercy, we pray. We pray especially for the situation in Ukraine and the ongoing war and conflict there. Lord, in your mercy, may it please you to bring it to an end and to grant peace in that land. Watch over your people there who are living for you in difficult situations and bless their testimony and may this war turn out to be that which glorifies you through the salvation of the lost, young and old. Lord, hear us, we pray. We give you thanks for our own church and fellowship here and for your goodness to us. We pray for the meetings planned for this week, that you'll have your hand upon them, that they'll be for your glory and for the spreading of the gospel and the building up of believers and the blessing of the church and our witness and testimony in this village. We pray especially for the baptismal service this coming Sunday morning. We pray for Hannah and Gregory. Watch over them, we pray. Prepare them as they make this stand and declare.
publicly through baptism, their faith in you, their love for you, their desire to live for you. Watch over them, we pray, and in the days afterwards, protect them from the subtle attacks of the enemy. So we commit that service to you. May it be for the glory of your name and for the challenge of all who come. We thank you for news from John and Abby Hunt and their appreciation of the gift that was sent. May that gift be the means of blessing to many and use your servants, we pray, for your glory. And gracious God, for the church plant that we're linked with in Eswatini, have your hand upon that church plant, we pray. Bless Pastor Twala, help him in his ministry, encourage him and strengthen him, grant him the joy of seeing many put their trust in Christ, and bless the believers and build your church, we pray. We pray for ourselves here and now. We pray for Helen in a little while as she comes to read your precious word and ask your help for her and blessing upon her. And for our pastor Neil, as he comes to open up that passage to us, grant again, we pray, the help of your Holy Spirit. Grant that you speak to us through your servant. Challenge us, encourage us, point us to Jesus. Help us to trust and obey him who loved us and gave himself for us and in whose name we pray. Amen. Our reading this evening comes from 2 Kings and it's the whole of chapter 5, which is at page 371 of the Church Bibles. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given the victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Oh my God, can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. 
Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but to the Lord. May the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I also have to bow down, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he bought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi ran after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and when they carried and they, carried them ahead of, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away, and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi replied. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Thanks very much, uh, Helen. Let's, uh, Let's pray. Psalm 25 says, Good... And upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. Father God, we do thank you that um, we can come to you this evening as sinners who have been saved through the death of Christ. We come to you as your people, wanting to grow in our faith, to be taught by you, to be guided in your way. And so, Lord, give us that humble heart and spirit now to listen from you and to do 
what is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're on my um, prayer mate app. I don't know how many of you use prayer mates, a little uh, phone app you can use. Uh, it has a link to whatever uh, missionary group you want to link it to. Um, I have a link to uh, Operation World. Uh, and each day I, I get a new country to pray for. And it's fascinating to read how the church is growing uh, throughout the world on the letter M at the moment. And one of the countries featured this week was Macedonia. don't know how much you know about Macedonia. The evangelical witness there is quite small, fewer than uh, 100 churches. Um, There's much opposition from the government to make it hard for for churches to to build their own facilities. But each church is growing. Um, There's good stuff going on. There's greater unity between the churches. There is a lot of church planting going on. And uh, the first non-Orthodox theological school has been opened. It was always part of God's plan for his gift of salvation to be extended to all nations. But the way he decided to do that was by first choosing one nation, the nation of Israel, from which the gospel would spread to the rest of the world. Most of the Old Testament is taken up with the story of Israel. But from time to time we get um, little examples of God saving individuals from other nations. For example, Rahab, the, uh, the prostitute who set, sheltered the, the Israelite spies before they attacked Jericho. Ruth, the Moabites, uh, who accompanied her mother-in-law back to Judah after her husband had died. Both women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus that we read at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Well, this evening we're going to look at another example of God extending his grace to a foreigner. Only this time, it's not a a vulnerable woman, but surprisingly, an army commander. Surprising because the army he commands is often engaged in warfare against his people. Even more surprising is that God chooses a young girl who has been taken captive from Israel to save the army commander. The amazing gift of grace leads to a complete change in his life. The sad thing is that at the same time, the people of Israel who've been blessed in so many ways are turning their backs on God's grace and dishonoring his name. Which is a stark reminder for us today that uh, even if we come to church or have been brought up in the Christian faith, if we reject or dishonor God's grace, we will deserve his punishment. Well, if you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll know we've been working through the book of two kings and focusing on the life of the prophet Elisha. It's not an easy book. There's some quite uh, strange passages, which um, at face value are quite difficult to, to understand. But as we've understood the, the wider context, it's helped us to make sense of what is going on here. Because ultimately, these passages reveal something more of the character of God, uh, his sovereign power and his grace, and his plan of salvation that ultimately leads to Jesus. In chapter 4, last uh, time, we saw Elisha raise the dead son of a widow in Shunem to, to life, and in the power of God feed 100 people with 20 loaves. But in chapter 5, we're in for another surprise because the scene switches to a a foreign country, to the country of Aram, the capital of which is Damascus. What do we know about Aram? Well, after the flood that we read about 
in Genesis. One of Noah's sons, Shem, became the father of Aram. And it was his descendants who became known as the the Arameans who settled um, in this area on the map in the the pale blue at the top there, uh, roughly modern-day Syria. Uh, It was this area to which Jacob fled. Remember when he tried to escape from from Isaac? Um, And in the Old Testament, we read that the Arameans often fought against Israel. Even in the next chapter, in verse 8, we find them at war, often God used Aram to punish Israel for their idolatry and their disobedience. It was the Arameans who killed the wicked King Ahab. And later on in chapter 13, we're told that when the Lord's anger burned against Israel, he kept them under the power of Aram. So they were enemies of Israel, a powerful nation to be feared, but also instruments of God's power. Well, let's turn to the passage. If you've got your Bibles handy, do please look at them. We've got a long chapter here to, to get through. But the first surprising thing we see is that God shows grace to a foreign army commander through the faith of a young slave girl. Naaman is the, the pivotal player in the story. He's introduced as the commander of the king of Aram. And he's described as a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. Why? Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. It's a reminder that God's sovereignty extends over the whole world, including those countries who do not acknowledge him as God. He is sovereign over global events, but also over the small details. And just as he had granted victory to Aram in battle and enabled Naaman to become great, he was also involved in the events that caused a young insignificant girl from Israel to be taken captive. We read about her in verse 2. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. I'm not told the details of the story, but no doubt it was quite tragic. Reminds us of the true story of Mo Farah, who we've heard about recently. How he was taken away as a young boy from his family, taken to a foreign country, and expected to be a servant. But as we will see, this servant girl is crucial to the whole story. We're going back to Naaman. Everything seems to be great for Naaman. He's uh, successful, he's highly regarded, he's powerful, but he's not well says he was valiant he was a valiant soldier but he had leprosy now that translation leprosy covers a whole range of skin diseases and the fact that he's still in his post implies that um, uh, it may not be serious but uh, it's serious enough and maybe his days as an army commander are number numbered if the condition worsens and it's at this point that we see the role of the the young girl from Israel. Despite all that she's gone through, she still has a faith in God and a compassion for her new master. And God is able to use this, in many ways, insignificant young girl, whose name we don't know, as an instrument of his grace. She says to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. 
And Naaman obviously took note of uh, what this young servant girl said. Maybe he was just desperate, but he went to the king of Aram and told her, told him exactly what she'd said. And the king did what he would normally do in such a situation. He, he wrote a letter and he sends it to his counterpart in Israel, the king of Israel. Sends it with a massive payment and asks him to cure his army commander. But have a look at the response of the king of Israel in verse 7 when he opens the letter. It says there, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. That's quite a striking contrast, isn't it, between a young girl who's living as a captive in a foreign land who still maintains her faith in God and the king of Israel, the most powerful man in the country who doesn't even think about consulting God's spokesman, the prophet Elisha. He's too busy worrying that this is a deliberate ploy by the king of Aram. Because it says in 1 Corinthians, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. I wonder if you sometimes feel, how can God use me? I'm too young. I'm too old. I don't have any particular gifts. Nathan's uh, mum and dad, uh, Sydney and Alison, were visiting uh, him and Lisa recently, and we managed to catch up with them. And um, his mum told us what had happened to them the previous day when they went to, uh, to Oxford for the day. Apparently they bought uh, an ice cream and there was nowhere to sit um, where they were, so they went to different tables, and um, Alison sat at this table with two girls next to her and an elderly gentleman on the other side of the, the girls. And she was earwigging the conversation, as you do. And um, she heard him say to these, these girls, um, I think uh, he'd been a student many years previously, he'd had a successful career, but he said to them, the most important thing I did in my life was decide to follow Jesus Christ. And he went on to share his, his testimony uh, with them about how he'd uh, impacted his life. And uh, I think a chauffeur came along and said, uh, Mr. So-and-so, it's time to go now. And they said, well, let me just finish talking to these, these girls for a minute. And um, then his grandson came and said, uh, Grandad, we really must go now. <laughs> so, um, so off he went. And um, then Alison started chatting to the girls. And they said to her, it was as if God had come and sat down next to them. Such was the impact this elderly gentleman had had on the lives of those two girls. You're never too young or never too old to be used by God. What's more important is your faith in him and your love for him. Let's pick up the story again in in verse 8 because Elisha hears that the king of Israel has torn his robes. And so he sends him a message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. In other words, he will know that there is a God in Israel. And what we see next is that we need a humble heart to receive God's grace. Naaman follows the uh, king's instruction and goes to the house of Elisha. 
And picture the scene here. There's an army commander with all of his horses and chariots turning up at the humble abode of Elisha. He's probably thinking, what am I doing here? And then to add insult to injury, the prophet Elisha doesn't even come out to greet him, but instead sends a messenger to say, go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. That's not what Naaman was expecting. Um, we told him he was expecting the prophet would maybe pray to the Lord, his God, ask him to, to be healed. Going and washing himself seven times in the, the River Jordan just seems a nonsense. If that's what it takes, why didn't he just do that in his own country? Why did he come all this way? What a wasted journey. And so he storms off in a rage. And I wonder if we're sometimes guilty of that uh, same sin as Naaman. and we, we have our own expectations of how God should work, how he should answer our prayers. And when he chooses to act differently, we become disappointed with, with God, as if we know better than God, and as if he should be at our beck and call. But then we see God once again at work through some, some minor characters, Naaman's servants. Again, we don't even know their names. But they attack their master's pride. They ask him, why is it? If he'd been asked to do some big thing, he wouldn't have hesitated. But just because it was a simple command to go and wash himself in the river, he refused. Well, they managed to convince him to change his mind. And so they traveled to the Jordan, which would have been a bit of a journey. And Laman does exactly what Elisha told him to do. And sure enough, his skin is healed. And we're told it becomes clean like that of a young boy. And so they go back to Elisha. And this time he does appear in person. And Naaman, having seen that only Israel's God has been able to heal him, he makes a confession of faith. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. In some ways, Naaman's initial refusal to do the simple thing asked of him is like the objections that people have to the gospel. As uh, Ray Dillard writes, he says, wash in the Jordan and be cured of leprosy. What a preposterous idea. I can't think of anything more ridiculous. Well, maybe one thing is more ridiculous. The idea that putting your trust and faith in a man executed on a cross almost 2,000 years ago can give you a renewed life now, forgiveness from sin, resurrection from the dead, and eternal life. Now that beats all. Well, to show his gratitude for being healed, Naaman offers a gift to Elisha, but he refuses it, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Why doesn't he accept a gift? Well, because God's, God's grace is a free gift. It's a gift that he has already paid for. It might not have been paid for at the time of this story, but the forgiveness granted to people then was in anticipation of the future sacrifice of Jesus. 
And so to try and pay for our salvation disrespects God's huge gift of grace. That's why Naaman had to go through this whole rigmarole of washing in the Jordan. He, he was someone who was used to getting what he wanted, either through force or through payment. And for him to be given something that he was not able to get for himself demonstrated his weakness and God's strength. And his first reaction was, I don't want to be shown to be weak. But then he allowed himself to be humbled. And when he realized just how powerful this God was, all he could do was acknowledge him as the one true God and submit to him as his servant. And look at the change in his attitude. Here is the arrogant army commander who refused to do a demeaning thing like wash in the river, now speaking to Elisha and referring to himself, I think, five times in a couple of verses, your servant, your servant. If you are a Christian here this evening, I wonder what element of pride did God have to break in you to accept his grace? History is littered with examples of so-called important people in the eyes of the world who God had to humble before they could submit to him. In politics, think of President Nixon's right-hand man, Charles Colson, or in this country, Jonathan Aitken, two quite arrogant, powerful men, both of whom had to have everything stripped away and even spend time in prison before they realize their need for God. Why does God humble people? Or to avoid any confusion between who is in control of our lives. It's as we see our weakness that we see God's power. And I wonder whether we may still be guilty of pride. Maybe you know you're, you're saved by God's grace, his undeserved loving kindness. But part of you thinks, uh, well, God should be quite pleased with me. You just look how much I'm doing for him. Look at the sacrifices I've, I've made. Well, even the ways in which we serve God or give to his work or pray for his work are opportunities God gives us. They're not ways for us to, to pay back our debt. We can never pay that back, but we don't have to. Naaman was humbled and he submitted himself to God. He makes a rather strange request to uh, take some earth back to his own country. I'm not given an explanation of what that is all about, but it appears to be linked to his acknowledgement that the only true God is worshipped at that time in Israel. And so this was like holy ground. And so he's taking it back to his country. Maybe he wanted to build an altar on it where he could make sacrifices to the one true God. He also knows that when he returns home, Given his uh, position, have a look at verse 17 onwards. Given his position as army commander, there may be a situation where he will have to enter the temple of the false god Rimon and bow down because his master is bowing down. And so he asks the Lord in advance to forgive him because he's saying in that act, he will not be truly worshipping that false god. He now belongs to the one true God. That concern shows that 
he has a new sensitivity in his conscience. We too live in a society that um, worships other gods, don't we? How sensitive is our conscience when we feel we're being drawn into doing things that are displeasing to God? Or have we become desensitized? A sensitive conscience is a sign of a, a true believer who knows what is pleasing or displeasing to God. A dramatic change has taken place in Naaman. He's, been, he's confessed faith. He's confessed allegiance to the one true God. He's become a humble servant. He's shown a sensitive conscience. God has shown grace to a foreigner. But at the same time, God is withholding his blessing from Israel because uh, the people there were rejecting the one true God. They were embracing other gods who they could not heal like he could. And Jesus made that point clear in, in Luke chapter 4 when he said to the people of Nazareth who rejected him as the son of God, he said to them, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. Elisha is an instrument of God's grace, but also of God's judgment. Well, having requested God's forgiveness for his future sins, Elisha pronounces God's blessing on Naaman. Go in peace, he says. And all is well, verse 19. Naaman's been physically healed. He's been spiritually healed. He's had an encounter with God. It's like a film, I don't know whether you've ever watched one of those films, which seems to have had a nicely wrapped up ending. The murder's been solved, it's all very tidily wrapped up. And then you look, well actually there's another 20 minutes to go. Something's still going to happen here, and it's probably not going to be good. And sadly, coming on to our final point, that's what happens in this story. Verse 19 continues after Naaman had travelled some distance Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Elisha's concern was to demonstrate the grace of God, his free gift of undeserved kindness. But Gehazi thinks, well, how can Naaman deserve to be healed for nothing? He's not even an Israelite. He's, he's a foreigner. What is my master playing at? If he's too soft, then I'll go and get something for myself. And so he hurries after Naaman, and Naaman sees him coming. So he stops his chariot. He gets down from his, his horse to, to see if everything is okay. Yes, everything's fine, says Gehazi. Um, it's just my master's changed his mind. Um, actually, that kind offer of your... Your money and clothes, um, it's not for him, but there's a couple of young prophets who arrived in town, so actually um, wouldn't mind having that after all. Of course, says Naaman, no problem. Here, you know, have, have the money, have my servants carry it for you. And when they get close to home, Gehazi takes the silver, the clothes, hides them in the house and sends them away. But of course, Elisha is a prophet and he can see things that Others cannot. And so when Gazi lies to him about where he's been, Elisha says he knows what he's done. And he punishes him 
accordingly. And it is a tragic reversal, isn't it? Naaman goes away healed because of his humble obedience to God. While Gehazi, he should have known better, walks away with leprosy. As I say, not a happy ending. Um, why can't we just leave it in verse 19? Go in peace. Well, at one level, it's a warning against greed and covetousness. It's a warning that we should find our joy and our contentment in God alone, not in any material things. But it's also more serious than that, because God had healed Naaman by his grace through the prophet Elisha. And Elisha had made it clear that he did not expect any payment for that. It was a free gift. And by chasing after Naaman and pretending that his master changed his mind, Gehazi was putting a price on God's grace. And so he was dishonoring God. I remember when I was a young lad hearing that expression, usually in the context of football, that someone had been charged with bringing the game into disrepute. I always wonder, what on earth does that mean? What a strange expression. And of course, it's, it's legalese for just giving something a bad reputation, giving something a bad name. As Christians, we believe we exist to glorify God, to give him a good name, to demonstrate his, his glory, his greatness. That is surely what prompted that young captive servant girl in Aram to tell her master about the prophet who could heal him. She wanted to glorify God. Our daily prayer should be, Lord, help me to glorify you today. And one of the main ways in which we reveal God's glory is by revealing his grace. As it says in Ephesians 2. Oops, let's go back. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. The worst thing we can do is give God a bad name. And we can do it in different ways. We can do it by distorting his grace, by giving the impression that our our salvation is not a free gift, but it also depends on us somehow being good enough. We can distort his grace by being proud of our achievements, by, by boasting instead of being a humble servant. We can also give God a bad name by cheapening his grace. By living a life without any Christian conscience. A life that's no different from that of anyone around us. Our salvation is only possible through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He took the penalty that we deserve so we can be healed. That's what we're going to celebrate now in the Lord's Supper. As we do so... And remind ourselves of God's grace. We give him the glory. And as we do so, we identify with his people from all over the world. As we rejoice in the power of the gospel of grace that has gone to all nations. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this story that we've looked at this evening. And pray that um, you have taught us something more through it of your wonderful grace, that wonderful free gift of salvation. 
Father, we thank you for that young girl who no doubt went through a tragic experience and yet still held on to her faith in you and was able to demonstrate your grace. It was through her that uh, that foreigner was able to receive your grace. Thank you for the way you humbled him to be able to receive your grace. Lord, and we pray for ourselves that we would feel that we are able to be used by you in whatever situation we may be, whatever we think of ourselves, whether we think of ourselves as insignificant or not having anything to offer. Thank you that we can still be used by you. So Lord, humble ourselves. Help us to be your humble servants, to submit to you just as Naaman did and acknowledge you as the one true God. Lord, help us to do everything to glorify you. May that be the mission for our lives. Protect us from doing anything that may give you a bad name. But Lord, may your grace shine through our lives in everything we do and say. In Jesus' name, amen. Now that brings us uh, to the end of our service. Uh, if the Lord spoken to you this evening and you would like someone to, uh, to pray with you, then please do pray with the person that you came with or uh, grab someone who's uh, sitting close by. But please do not leave here uh, without praying. Uh, some words, uh, some more words uh, from 1 Timothy to, uh, to close our service. Paul writes this. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.